I'm Scott Farber, along with Larry Mallory today um, on our special podcast today. That's right. You know, it's a podcast in an oral history today. We have Vietnam veteran Harold Culver with us today. And we're going to talk to Harold and get some stories, and uh, I think we're going to find it quite fascinating today. I think so, too. Uh, I was so fortunate to be able to meet Harold through his daughter, Stephanie, who's done a lot of work, marketing work for a number of the NFL and NBA former players. So we welcome Harold Culver. With and and, and uh, you met his wife who was running for office. That's right. That's right. That's right. What she, office was she running for? City Council. She won. She and won. She won. All, right. All right. Congratulations to Bedford, Texas for getting around <laughs> the City Council. All right, Harold. Well, let's go back. 1945, Shreveport. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about when you, were, when you were a little kid. Uh, I grew up in Shreveport. Uh, went to school there. Uh, graduated from Fairport High School. Uh, was uh, honored enough, I don't know if I was honored, but to go to school with Terry Bradshaw. Uh, at the same time. Now, high school or college? High school. Now, did you have any clue that this guy was going to be in the... Uh, well, he NFL? played ball, and I played a little bit of ball. and uh, But I didn't have any idea Terry was going to yeah. be what he turned out to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be able to know, know him and yeah. grew up in a short period of time with him. Yeah. But anyway... Uh, I went to an electronic school to, uh, I was interested, ever since I was a kid, I was always interested in electronics. And I was taking radios apart when I was 12 years old to see how they worked. Right, right. And of course, back in that time, they didn't have transistors and everything, it was all tubes. Right. And so I was going to go into the uh, electronic field and uh, I started to, my process of starting to go to school. And at this time, I was around uh, 19 or 20 years old. And I got a draft notice. And the Army in that period of time in the 60s uh, had the draft was installed. And, and you were aware Vietnam was raging. Oh, yes, and very much so. It was all over the news back then. Right, right. And even the college kids were protesting the war. And a lot of, I didn't, I was in busy uh, with my life. And I kind of put that on the back ship, didn't have any idea. Me and my wife were planning on getting married at that time, Ruth. I've been married to her for 54 years. And uh, so anyway, they sent the report to the uh, draft board and it gave me about three months before I had to report. And <clears throat> at that time, uh, I began to start getting my life uh, situated so that uh, I could go into the service if, if I passed everything. Mm -hmm. So uh, the day of the draft, uh, I reported to the draft board and uh, Ruth carried me down there 
And I got out of the car and told her bye, not knowing that that was the last time I was going to see her for several months. And uh, I thought I'd go in there and they'd do their doings and I could go back to the house. Right, right. That didn't happen. <laughs> uh, I went in and they gave you a physical. Of course, I passed it. And then they gave you a battery, a little test. And next thing I know, I was getting on a bus. And I said, where are we going? They said, Fort Polk, Louisiana. Start your basin. I said, wait a minute. I ain't said, I ain't got, <laughs> they said, get on the bus. <laughs> so I, I got on the bus with the rest of us. Wow. So you're told to get on the bus. I was told to get on the bus. And so. And say goodbye to your wife. Well, I didn't get to say goodbye to my wife. I just, I, I told her outside when I first got there about 30 minutes ago or, or, or 45 minutes earlier, I told her that I'd be, I'd see her later and I'd be back. Now, was your dad in the service too? Yes, he was in the Navy. Was he in World War II? Uh, yes. He was in there a very short time. Uh, the uh, ship he was on was hit by German uh, torpedo. Okay. And so he was in the European theater. Yeah. Okay. And he was uh, uh, injured, and so he, I don't think he was in service for about six months or less. And he just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, just like I was. And he was injured, and uh, he was able to come home. And, but he told me a, a weird story one time. He said he was standing on a street corner and had walked up waiting for the light to change. And he heard some people behind him talking. And my dad was a big strapping man. He weighed about 275, 300 pounds. And uh, he was a mechanic all his life, worked on cars. And uh, anyway, he was standing there on that street corner and the people behind him said, uh, we're talking, and they said, I wonder why this big strapping guy is not in the service fighting for our country. And he turned around to them and told them, he said, I done been there, and turned and walked off. That's yeah. all he said to them. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Funny That's the only story say. he'd ever told me. Yeah, yeah. In his service. So that was all he had ever talked about the war yeah. to you. That's all you knew. What about your grandparents? Uh, I don't really know much about my grandparents. Uh, I barely do remember my grandfather on my mother's side. And I don't remember anything about my grandparents on my father's side. They were already passed. Well, now, were they born in this country? Or yes, they, they were born know? in this country, the best I know. Yeah. yeah. And. Uh, so we, my dad's family came from Germany, mm -hmm. and they came over, to, there were four brothers that came over together, and uh, the story is, uh, my great-grandfather moved to Liberty Hill, Louisiana, and his three other brothers stayed in New York. And now, you got to remember, this is back at the uh, early 19th century. Right, right. And uh, well, the early 20th century, early, early 1900s, yeah, yeah, early 1900s, yeah. And uh, 
the, the rumor is they bought land on Fifth Avenue, not knowing it was Fifth Avenue at that time. It was not Fifth Avenue. Right. It was land. It yeah. was just land. Yeah. And they opened the boiler works. That's what they were. They were uh, uh, worked with their hands. Right. And right. that's what they did in Germany. And uh, they come over here for a better life and to get uh, more of a, I'm sure of a, more situated, uh, they've heard about how much better the country was. Right. So they opened the boiler works in, in New York. And uh, that side of the family has become quite wealthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the property where they own. Yeah, yeah. And right place at the right time. Yeah. Right place at the right time. And some of them even own, uh, up north, they own Culver hamburger shops. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, Culver's not a, a, a well-known name that's out there. Uh, I've got a book of, a list of all the Culver's, and most of them is kin to me. Yeah. Wow. And my family. Yeah. I, I actually worked for a company called Alberto Culver. Uh -huh. Are you familiar with that company? Yes. And is that your family? That's my family. <laughs> I never knew that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> most of them, most of the Culver's are kin to me one way or the other. Yeah. 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 And what about the Culver uh, hamburger places down in Texas that I see? Are those yeah. uh, your families also? Uh, if that's under their name, yeah, that the Culver's, yeah. uh, they're probably from the ones up north. So their start was from Germany, mm -hmm. and then they came over here for the chance at the better life, the American dream. Right. Good for that. Mm. Yeah. Good for that. Well, let me. What did your dad do? He was a mechanic. Mm -hmm. He worked. He had his own garage. As a matter of fact, he had two dealerships at one time. Sorry to say, he picked the wrong dealership. He had Kaiser, Fraser, and Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they went belly up. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> What was that like, though? I mean, uh, did he have a showroom? Yes, he had a showroom. How many cars? What, what year was this? What, what this was is it? probably back in the 50s. In the 50s? How many cars did he have in the showroom? Oh, best I can remember, they seemed like four or five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't very big. And then you had to wait. Were you able to buy a car and take it, or did you have to wait till the next car came in to replace I, it? I have no idea how that worked. Yeah. All I know is that Dad had a showroom and a dealership and a garage out back uh -huh. and I'd go down there sometimes and play around and yeah. get in trouble and yeah. So your dad kind of knew what you were headed into when you got on that bus didn't wave goodbye to anything your dad knew what you might be seeing yeah based on his experience right. how did your mom take it that you got drafted? Uh, she was upset and uh, rightfully so. You can imagine sending, or not sending, but having your 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 youngest, I was the uh, baby of the family. Yeah, yeah. Having your youngest sent off to war. Now your brothers were already in the service then? Uh, my brother, my second oldest brother was in the Navy. Right. He was a radio operator okay. on a uh, destroyer escort. What that is, I don't know. I was never in the Navy. <laughs> and uh, my older brother was in the Marines. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
He's the one that got killed. But he didn't get killed over there. He was back after he got out, served his time in the Marines. He came home and uh, went to college to be an engineer. And sometime he had worked for a pipeline company. And that's where he was killed when that pipeline company, that pipeline blew out that he was working on up in Canada. Wow. Wow. And your sister was at home. Was she, uh, she must have been very upset too when everybody was leaving. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she was. All right, let's get to Vietnam. You're there. And it, uh, as you had mentioned, it was a very unpopular war. Right. How were the guys over in Vietnam? How, you know, dealing with what they had to deal with, knowing at home there's riots going on, literally, against the war. What are you guys they talking kept, about? They kept a lot of that away from us. Mm -hmm. And I can understand now why they kept it away from us, because it would lower the morale of the, uh, the uh, servicemen. Servicemen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we got some news through the letters and everything that, that we would receive, but not, we didn't, uh, <clears throat> been in the position, maybe some of the guys in, in down in Da Nang or something like that in bigger towns in Nam could see television or whatever, but we didn't have that, that luxury where I was stationed. Right, right. Uh, I was stationed at Camp Evans later, but when I first came into country, I came in in Cameron Bay. And how I was <clears throat> introduced to Vietnam, we got off the plane, and this sergeant was standing there with a clipboard and a list of names. And he was telling us to line up over here, let me call roll call, see who he had and who he didn't have. And in the midst of him calling that roll call, we got incoming, which is, incoming is, the enemy is shooting mortars and rockets at us. And it was hitting all over around that air base. And he told us to run and follow him. And he took off running and we followed him. We ran into a bunker. And we stayed there until about 30 minutes until it was over with. And that was my introduction to Vietnam. Welcome to Vietnam. Yeah. Wow. It, it really, uh, opened my eyes real quick yeah, yeah. to what I was getting into. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was scary. Yeah. Real scary. Tell me some of your scary uh, moments beyond this now. Uh, after we got there and everything, they sent us to different uh, places where we were assigned. Uh, before I got to Vietnam, I went through the Army's electronic school in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. And uh, went through all of their training, passed everything with flying colors. And so they picked <clears throat> out of about 50 guys in this class, they picked about five of us and asked if we wanted to advance our training to crypto. Well, for people that don't know what crypto is, it's coding and decoding. Uh, working with the uh, machines that code your voice, code uh, your writing, 
And uh, so I, naturally I was interested in it. So I said yes, and pretty much the rest of them did too. So they sent us to uh, the crypto school they had there in Fort Monmouth. We always went by this building, this big tall building. It looked like it had about four or five floors, but it didn't have no windows in it. And it had a big Constantina fence around it that was about eight foot high and guards on, on the front gate and the back gate of it. And I've always, when they told us that's the crypto school. And I said, why ain't they got any windows? They said, they don't want anybody spying. Just in case. You can't see in it. And so <clears throat> I went through that school. And uh, so when I went to NAM, my MOS was, uh, I was granted a secret clearance. And my MOS was uh, working with crypto machines and uh, decoding and coding messages from different elements of our operation. So I was stationed with the 101st Airborne and uh, I worked with them for about two months and I was in communications and uh, I pretty much ran all their communications for them. And what I did was uh, operate these machines and made sure I received uh, codes from the Pentagon every month. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of that month, I had to bring them codes back in, destroy them, and then send a letter to the Pentagon with the uh, signature of mine and the communications officer saying that the, the codes had been destroyed, no ones and the new ones had been issued, and to who they have been issued to. Uh, they guarded them very close. Uh, a lot of people's lives depended on these codes because that's how they talked to each other in situations when it needed to be coded. For instance, we had uh, <clears throat> spotters out flying airplanes and helicopters. They would catch the enemy in the open, the movement of the enemy. And they had what they call scramblers hooked up to their radios. They could call back to our operations through using this scrambler. It would garb it, garble the message so that the enemy, if he was given the coordinates, they didn't understand what he was saying. If they understood what he was saying, all they had to do was pick up and move. Because we fix these shell them in a minute. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> anyway, they send the messages back to headquarters. We'd decode it through our scramblers. And operations could then go to the computer, which is a FADAC computer, and it was a far directional computer, put in the, the latitude and longitude in it of what the spotter said. It would set, tell them what to shoot the guns at, what how to position them. This is all done within seconds. Oh. And uh, then they would fire yeah. on the enemy. Yeah. And that's the reason, main reason they had to be coded. Because if they didn't code it, the enemy would say, well, they talking about us looking on the map. Mm -hmm. The coordinates. 
all they got to do is move. And then uh, it's no use to our side. That was just some of the reasons to be coded. And a lot of times we had radio, we had tele, radio teletypes that uh, we called them the RTT rigs, and they were coded. Any message that come over here was coded. And then my job was to set these machines up every 24 hours with a different code from that I received for that month. And I had about 14 batteries that was under me that I had to make sure they could communicate to me or the operation center. You, it's just such an interesting story, oh. all of the background. You know, all we see is the war part. Right. But there's so much happening behind the strategy. scenes. The, stru yeah, yeah, the strategic strategy. part of it. I even helped direct fire for the battleship of New Jersey. He was, they were setting off the, uh, in the uh, China Sea, probably 20 miles. And uh, I directed fire for him to our uh, spotter that spotted some enemy in the open that was uh, about six or seven miles inland. And uh, what I understand, this ship could shoot over the horizon. Mm. And uh, so that's 25 miles right there. And I don't know how far the New Jersey would shoot, but it was a long ways. And these shells were 500 pound shells. Yeah. No, 2,500 pound shells. 2,500 pound shells going that far? Yes. The size of a Volkswagen hmm. Beetle. Yeah. And it's it's tremendous. You could hear these things coming over, yeah. and they sounded like a freight train. How old were you now? At the time this was going on, I was 21, 22 years old. So you're 21, 22 years old, directing part of the battle. Did you ever realize the magnitude of what's going on here? Not really at that time. Invincible? I was just doing my job. Were you invincible in your mind at that time? Never gave it a thought. I really didn't. You guys just did just, it? Just did it. Matter of fact, <clears throat> to get these codes out to the batteries that we had to talk to, I had to carry these codes, hand carry them, but they wouldn't let nobody else out. I had a satchel that I put them in, mm -hmm. and that satchel had an incinerary grenade in it. If we were shot down, I was in a helicopter. If we were shot down, I was to try to pull the pin on that grenade so it would destroy that satchel and everything in it, the codes. If the enemy got them codes, they could know everything we were doing for that month. And you'd have to change them every 24 hours? And every 24 hours we changed yeah. codes. Yeah. Wow. I had to, couldn't we? Just in case they did get it for one day. And so you were uh, expendable? Well, I don't know if about that, but I was the only one that did it. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm saying if you had to pull that pin. I had, well, I hoped I never had to. Right, of course. Uh, one time I thought I was going to have to. Uh, we were getting shot at, and you could hear the bullets hitting the chopper. And it's, it's a scary thing to hear them things thud, hitting that metal. And uh, anyway, we're flying along, and the pilot was trying to get down low. Uh, 
what you do over in Nam, you fly as low as to the ground as you can and as fast as that chopper will go. Yeah. Around 150 to 175 miles an hour. And you're flying five foot off the ground. Five yeah. to 10 foot off the ground. Yeah. And I was looking out the front and I could see a, a row, you flying across a rice paddy. Mm -hmm. And I could see a row of trees coming up pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, any minute he's gonna pull up. Any minute he's gonna pull up. And I said, I said, this guy's crazy. <laughs> he pulls up at the last second. And what he did, he underestimated it. And the strut on that chopper on the left side was tore off, hitting the top of that tree. And we had to call ahead and they set up ammunition boxes at the base, at the uh, uh, land battery where I was going just to be able to set the chopper down. Otherwise, it'd set down crooked and blade, blade would hit the ground. Right. And so they had to set the boxes up. And so he sat down on that one strut on this side and one on the ammunition box. How old was the pilot? He was about 25, 26. <laughs> one of the older guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Did you ever see the enemy, like up close? Could you see the people? Yes. What yes. is that like? It, it's terrifying. It really is. It's terrifying. Uh, the first time I got my introduction to them, uh, we were known. I was in the 101st. Now I only stayed with them for about oh three months or less, two months, and then the. First, first Air Cav drafted me. They wanted, they needed me up in their position, so I was drafted to the first, first Air Cav, and that's where I served out the rest of my term. And when, well, the rest of the time I was there, yeah, yeah. I didn't serve out my whole term, but uh, I was stationed with the first Cav, and uh, did the same thing for them. What shortened your your term? Uh, a 122 millimeter rocket, enemy rocket. Tell me that's made by Japan. I mean, made by China. Uh, China. Oh. Yeah, China would, and, and Russia was backing them. When, do you want to know what now? Excuse me. I, I, I want to know what happened. About the bomb. Oh, about the rocket hit. Yeah, about the rocket. But Well, you miss a whole lot of stuff that's not really nice. Well, 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 let's hear that. We're listening. Yeah, oh, right. okay. Uh, <coughs> I don't say it's nice. It's just stuff that's happened. And, uh, I was in a pretty safe position, I thought. And I was over in 68 during the Tet Offensive. Mm -hmm. And when Wade got run over by the North Vietnamese, and sorry to say, but the Marines lost it. And so they called on the, they don't tell this, they called on the first air cap to back them up, to get it back. So we went up there to help them. And we captured the way back, got it back from the North Vietnamese. And during that operation, a couple of weeks later, we found out we had orders to go down. Highway 1 followed the coastline all the way along Benton, 
numb from Saigon all the way up to Way. Way was the last city before you crossed the DMZ. Uh, Way was about 15 miles from the DMZ. Uh, then Highway 9 broke off and followed the DMZ. And we were sitting at a Marine's barracks one evening talking, talking to the Marines. And here come a tank retriever back up the road pulling a tank. And uh, I have never seen that before. Uh, you know, I've never, I've seen tanks and everything, but I've never seen a tank retriever. It was a huge thing. And it had a boom that went back and it was hooked onto that tank, that tank. And it was <coughs> towing that tank back up. It had hit a mine going down Highway 9. And so they went and picked it up. And that Marine turned to me and he said, y'all going down that road in the morning? I said, yeah. He said, ain't nobody been down it but that tank. And it didn't get very far in months. I, he said, uh, North Vietnamese owns it. I said, well, we're going to take it back. That's our orders. Uh, over in Oshaw Valley, there were 400 Marines pinned down by estimated uh, four to 5,000 NVA had pinned them down and really would have given them hell. Our job was to try to go in there and rescue So we left that morning on a convoy. We had so much equipment, everybody couldn't fly. So we had a convoy. I've got pictures I brought with me of this convoy. And it wasn't very far. It was about 30, 40 miles. But it took all day because we were driving walking speed. They had mine sweepers out in front of us. Mm -hmm. And never so often we'd have to stop. We were located probably almost in the rear of the uh, uh, convoy. Mm -hmm. And for reasons why, I found out later, with our equipment that we had with us that was secret, uh, they didn't want us up front in case they had uh, a problem getting overrun or something and losing that uh, vital information and, and equipment. So, uh, on the way there, we had to go through this 175 artillery battery that's located on Highway 9 at a place called Rock Hall. And believe it or not, I run into Oliver North. <laughs> he was stationed, he was the lieutenant over that battery. And I've got a book signed by him I brought with me. And uh, of course, I read, he was in uh, Dallas about three or four years ago in a book signing. And I went over and told him, I, and met him again, and told him, I said, you remember me? And he looked at me and he said, uh, he said, you look familiar, but I can't, can't recall. I said, I was at the rock pile when you were. And he said, oh yeah. I can remember, you was with the first air cab. And I said, yeah, I was with the first air cab. But anyway, we left the rock pile and went on into the Oshaw Valley. And we met some resistance quite a bit. 
but we managed to run the uh, NVA out of there. They pulled out when we came in. The first Air Cab had a real bad reputation. I mean, we was ass kickers. <laughs> uh, the guys that was on the front line, they knew their stuff. Main reason we had the first Air Cab had the greatest and the best equipment, and we had the biggest. Uh, uh, men power in our 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 unit, mm -hmm. and so it wasn't nothing hardly to stand up to us. I mean, when you got the best equipment, the army could furnish you. Nobody else has got that stuff. I mean, we had starlight scopes, mm -hmm. everything. It was unheard of back then. Uh, when I went through electronic school, they were talking about chips back then. The public didn't see that for 20 years later. And uh, I'll get back to the story. We left the rock pile and went in, like I said, on into the Oshawa Valley and, and uh, met, met some resistance. And the Marines that was pinned down, you, they came out of that bunkers, hugging our necks and thanking us. Because they knew that they were in pretty bad place. They was in a bad place. They couldn't even come out of the bunker to uh, defecate or anything like that. They had it was they'd get shot with uh, enemy snipers, and during the night they manned closer and closer to their bunker, and so they're afraid to go outside. They didn't know where the mines were. It was a bad thing, bad situation. And I'm glad the the overpowering force of the first cow scared the hell out of the North Vietnamese, and they pulled out. And uh, we held that position for a month, and then went back to Camp Evans. And uh, a couple of weeks after that happened, that's when my time was to leave Vietnam <laughs> on a stretcher. <laughs> what happened? Uh, one, we've been getting incoming uh, rounds every morning about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And it was just routine stuff. They'd hit here, you know, just arbitrarily in different places. And the enemy really didn't have foreign observers like we did. They just aimed that stuff and just pulled the trigger on it mm -hmm. and let it go, hoping they would hit something. Well, on May 5th, 1968, a 122-millimeter rocket came in, and it hit the building I was in, where my communications building was. And I was sitting at the desk decoding some information. Next thing I know, I believe it or not, and I've talked to doctors about this. Your mind seems like to capture this stuff in slow motion. Mm -hmm. I could smell the rocket fuel in the explosion of the uh, cornite. Is that what they call it? The explosion. Right. And uh, I could smell that. And as I smelled it, I was flying through the air. And I hit the wall on the other side of the room, 
And that's all I remember. Yeah. But this was all in slow motion to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's unreal how slow it happens. Well, I woke up in uh, 13th Medivac. And they told me what happened. Uh, the sergeant and the lieutenant in communications with there at my bedside. And they kind of explained to me that the walls would blow down on the building. And on top of this building was PSP, which is a, they use this metal, the CBs uses this metal to make makeshift runways. They lock it together and it's pretty thick because mm -hmm. the planes land on it. Mm -hmm. We used it to put on top of the buildings to stop mortars from hitting, from penetrating, and then put two layers of sandbags on top of it. Well, this building collapsed on top of me. Uh, not what uh, the damage that the rocket did to me, that building finished it, pretty much. And then we furnished power for all the uh, compound, and we were running generators out back. And the communication shed here, and the generator shed was uphill just a little bit here, and about 10 foot apart. Well, when that rocket hit, shrapnel went everywhere. It killed three guys and wounded 14 of us. And ripped open the gas and diesel fuel that these generators were running on. Fuel run down, it caught fire. Fuel run down to the communications building and started burning it. And uh, I've got some real bad burns on my legs. And, so uh, your injuries affected you your whole life? Yes. I've been uh, for 50 something years. <clears throat> yeah. You told me before we started taping that it took you 35 years to tell your wife some of these stories. True. Why, number one, and number two, what f finally made you open up? Why, uh, I really don't know. See, I, uh, I, I find it interesting because of all the veterans we've taped over the years, the World War II guys have talked very freely to us and their families have told me more than once, that that's the first time they heard these stories. And the Vietnam guys are still kind of closed-minded. Or, or not closed-minded, closed-mouthed. Right. Yeah, closed they, they still don't want to tell the stories. And some guys are opening up. So I just wonder, why is that? I, it just, uh, how we were treated when we came home. That did affect you guys terribly, didn't it? It's better yeah. today, though, isn't it, for all of you? Somewhat. Uh, I tell you something that really pisses me off right now mm -hmm. is the Wounded Warriors program. They don't even look at us. They don't even recognize us. They'll take care of the veterans from Gulf War on forward but not the Vietnam era people. 
and that's still true today. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't. I, that's one thing I just really. Is there a service the Vietnam guys could turn to, like a wounded warriors? Is there something available for you guys, or is it a struggle? The DAV is the best one. Yeah. They've been in business for over a hundred and something years. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a life member of the DAV. Tell us, just tell us about all of the the impact of all of that on your body now. I mean, you have a lot of health challenges. Uh, when all this happened and that building collapsed, uh, I've had to have my left foot reconstructed and ankle. Uh, of course, I've got a lot of bad burns on that left leg because of fuel. They were able to, they told me they were able to put the fire out. Well, first off, the uh, uh, operator of the uh, phone lines, he was in that building with me, but he was in a bunker park where the RTT rigs are. They protected him, but they didn't protect my building. It was made out of just plain old wood. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was looking around and he told us, he said, I don't see cover anywhere. And he said, he's always in that building. And he said, well, maybe he's in there. And so they went, they put the fire out and uh, went to digging around and then they found me. Mm -hmm. uh, I was still unconscious, yeah. thank God. Yeah. Uh, they loaded me on a stretcher and carried me over to the 13th. We were, I was lucky, 13th medevac was next to our compound. They carried me over there and I understand they got me pretty well stable and stopped the bleeding. Mm -hmm. uh, I was hit with shrapnel in my legs, uh, in my stomach, and I even got a small piece of my finger. You can still see it right there. You can see that dark spot, that shrapnel. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked the doctor a long time ago if it cut it out, and he said, I'd do more damage cutting it out, just leave it alone. Yeah. It's not going to hurt you. I said, okay. And so they told me the story of what happened, more, pretty much that 14 got, the reason why I knew 14 got injured and three killed. And I asked him who was the three. One of them was my best buddy. His name was uh, Nemo Brill. He was from South Louisiana, a cake. And uh, he lived in uh, where they used to have the crawfish festival, Brill Bridge. Mm -hmm. that's, that's it. I've been down there to it a lot. But that's where he lived. And I visit, visited where he used to live after they stabilized me in, in uh, 13th Medivac. They put me on a chopper and flew me out to a hospital ship. I've, I've also got pictures of that. Mm -hmm. did, you bring, did, uh, did you bring them today? Yes. Okay. He has them when they're done, I'll take, take pictures with him. Yeah. Well, okay. okay. Uh, reason why I have pictures of the hospital ship, I have a neighbor that lives in the same neighborhood I live right now, was a doctor in the Marine Corps. 
and stationed at Nanang. And his hospital ship was off the coast of that area. And he was also a pilot, a surgical pilot, and I don't know what they call him. Anyway, he flew out and was taking pictures. He always, he's always, he takes pictures now like mad. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was taking pictures of the, there was two hospital ships in that area. I was over at his house one day looking at some of his slides that he took in Nam, and he had them hospital ships on there. And one of them has got Snoopy laying on his back on a stretcher, painted on the side of it. And I told him, I said, that's the ship that I went to for the, uh, the hospital ship. That's where they took me. And I said, Dad, you can see the health pad. And he said, I said, make me a copy of that slide. I want a copy of a picture on that. He said he would. So he, he, I've got them and I brought them with me. Yes, nice. And uh, plus I got about 75 other pictures. Well, what, what we had mentioned, you know, you're sharing stories today that you said you really didn't. And you said it took you about 35 years to even open up to your wife. Yeah. What was it that got you to finally say, I'm going to tell my story? I was when Desert uh, Storm started, mm -hmm. and I got to watching it on TV. They broadcast it, you know, live, right, right. 24 hours, just about. Right. I got to watching that and talking to my wife, and I, that's when I started opening up right then. Yeah. Was she shocked at what you were telling her? Kind of, in a way. But since she knew me yeah. and the way I was acting before yeah. and wouldn't say much, she knew there was some pretty dark yeah. areas in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she remembers you getting on that bus leaving and then when you came home, it was different. That's so. another thing, too. When I was in basic, they gave you a battery of tests to see whether you want to be in infantry if you're drafted now. Right. Or they're going to stick you. If you don't know nothing, you're just a dumb buddy. They're going to stick you out there in the infantry. Right. <clears throat> Luckily, I was smart enough to pass their test in right. electronics. And that's how they sent me to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Right. <clears throat> when I got out of basic, in mean, meantime, I could see my wife. She would drive down to Fort Polk, and I'd see her on the weekends. Right. And... Uh, <clears throat> When I got uh, out of basic, I figured I'd get a leave. They didn't give me a leave. I went straight to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. They put me on a plane, and I went straight up there and went through school up there, and then I got a leave. I got a two-week leave then. Right. And then when I come back, they sent me back to Fort Polk, and I couldn't figure that out until I got down there, and they put me in jungle training. Right. I said, oh, I know where I'm going now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. They had jungle training. Huh? Yeah, back then they had jungle training yeah. in Fort Polk too. I'm sure they had it in a couple of other places, mm -hmm. but to get you ready for Nam. Yeah. How in your in your regular life, you know, you and Ruth have three daughters. Do you have grandkids? Oh yeah. You know, your grandkids know these stories, or are they too mm, young? Not really. I'm in the process of, of writing a book. Okay, and they, and they now have this. Forever, That's right. yeah. That they'll be able to, to look at and see you tell the stories. Um, as you've gone through your life and everything, 
are you able to get rid of this for a little while and enjoy a family picnic? Oh, sure. You put it in your back of your mind. Yeah. And it goes away. Yeah. And I've been pretty blessed in other ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I could have been killed. Right. I don't know why I, I was saved. I was probably the second worst injury there. Mm -hmm. Another guy there lost his leg. Uh, he was a friend of mine. Uh, I almost lost mine. And in fact, the doctor wanted to cut it off and I begged him not to. My left leg. Yeah. Uh, I've got uh, a reconstructed foot and ankle. I've got an artificial knee in that leg. Uh, it's been burnt real bad. Uh, you still have shrapnel in you? I still have shrapnel in me. My right leg has got an artificial knee. Second one. The first one didn't. It got infected. Uh, my back broke in three places. Uh, it broke my left arm. I've got four vertebrae in my neck fused. And it all happened. My dad told me once when he came back from World War II, he looked at my mom and he said um, he was glad to be home because it wasn't as much fun as they told him it was going to be. That's about right. That's, that's, that's a correct comment. I well, we did have a laugh or two together over there right. at different times, especially in the evening. And this is what we'd do. We was issued two beers a day <laughs> when we wasn't in the field. Right. When we were back at headquarters, we was issued two beers a day. And being in a, I was in a room about this size, maybe just a little bit littler. And I had a, couple of safes in there. That's where I kept all the secret stuff. Right. And there was a bunch of, there was a bed in there. I was on duty 24 hours. Right. I did not have to do nothing else but make sure all that stuff worked. Right. But I was, like I said, if two o'clock in the morning, if a message would come in, I had to get up. Anyway, so I was in this, this room was my bedroom, kitchen, living room, Right, right. Everything. They did let me out of there to go take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't even know where I was going with this. It's all right. That's all right. Uh, I have one of them moments. <laughs> well, 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 for me, part of where you were going was showing the teamwork and the camaraderie between yeah. the soldiers. When I was getting that, we issued the two beers a day. Yeah. Well, yeah. I had a refrigerator in this room. Yeah. I was lucky enough to get a, one of them little small ones. And everybody, I'd tell them, I said, we're gonna have a party this coming two or three days down the road. And uh, if everything works out right, I said, save your beers, bring them yeah. to me and I'll put them in the refrigerator. So we'd do that. Yeah. And then that evening when we, they got off of duty. I was still on duty. I was still on duty. I was on duty 24-7. We'd get in the radio repair shop, which is next to my room, and uh, have a few drinks and get slushed <laughs> if we could. 
<clears throat> what advice do you have for the next generation? Oh, Lord. I don't know if I have any advice for them. They so far further along than I was ever in just about everything that that comes along in these days and times. I told my wife, I said, I'd like to live or see what was going on a hundred years from now. Yeah. The technology, yeah. since that's what I did. Yeah. 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 And uh, strange to be when I came home, just before I left, I hired out for the railroad, the Texas Pacific Railroad. And so when I came back, they gave me my job back. But I could no longer switch, be a switchman or a brakeman. Right. So they gave me a, a desk job. And they called me, what I was called was a, a mud hop. I'd go out, check the trains in, write the numbers of the cars down. That's where they had computers to do all that stuff now. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to. And I did, I did that for a while and I, did, I hated it. So uh, I asked the train master if I could uh, go to the yardmaster school. And by this time, Texas Pacific sold out to Missouri Pacific. So the, their trainmaster school, I mean their yardmaster school was up in St. Louis, Missouri. So they sent me up there for about six months and I come back and I was able to, uh, on the extra board, uh, when people would take off or vacation or on the weekends off, uh, I would fill in yardmaster. Mm -hmm. Finally I got enough seniority to hold Evening yard master. And that's what I retired as. He's evening yard master. But at the time, Missouri Pacific was bought out by Union Pacific. And so I retired with Union Pacific Railroad. 